Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, I'm going to pick up where I left off from last week with what I was not able to get to. But this will be our last little foray into this idea of is religion for the sake of God or for the sake of man? Is it objective or subjective from the perspective of the person or from the perspective of God? And so last week as we were looking at this, I said this works itself out in a couple of different ways that make apparent to us then the difference between a religion for the sake of God, an objective religion versus a subjective religion for the sake of man. And how easily we can think we have an objective religion rooted in the objective realities of who God is and yet really operate in a very subjective, me, egocentric way. And I said this, this manifests itself in two places, one in the church and one in politics. One of the ways that it demonstrates itself in the church, and I want to look at a couple of those first, is the way that we preach the gospel. Okay? And so I want to play for you a little audio clip from Remarks made by Pastor Alistair Begg about the man in the middle cross, Jesus, and the person he said, the thief next to him, would be with him that day in paradise. And listen to how Alistair speaks of this communication between Jesus and this thief when the thief gets to heaven. And in a few places there will be a little pause, and if you could see the video, Alistair has some interesting facial expressions that are taking place, and then you'll hear laughter. So when you hear a little pause and then you hear laughter, you'll, you'll know it was his uh, facial expression that generated the laughter. So with that, let's listen to what he says. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you 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 were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, ne- you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, did Excuse me, let me get my supervisor. Think I'll get the supervisor ranger. So, we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. 
This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. <laughs> now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. Now, while I thought that was quite an amusing way to recount what took place on the cross and what happened when that thief became before the throne of God. But you see, so much of what we preach is subjective. It is, I did this, I did this, because I believed, because I had faith, because I chose, because I made a decision, because I decided to follow. And it always starts with I, 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 I. That's egoistic religion. Regardless of what we may preach about justification, that's an embrace of egoistic religion. Now, here's the other problem with egoistic religion. If my salvation is ultimately dependent upon me and the decision that I make, then as I preach, I must be careful to not say things that would preclude you from being able to make Jesus reasonable to your own thinking. So. I have to be careful of making certain kinds of claims about who God is because it would appear unreasonable. See, to us it's unreasonable that God would not have mercy on all of us. It's unreasonable to think that God would not give grace to all of us because certainly we all think, egoistically, we all somehow deserve mercy. And mercy is never by desert. That is a contradiction in terms. It's an egoistic, subjective religion. But when we don't preach the gospel in the objective way that exalts the glory of God and posits to man that you exist for the glory of God and you have rebelled against God and his judgment against you is just and you have no claim on the mercy and the goodness and the grace of God, well, they would say that's foolishness, right? That's foolish preaching. That's actually the charge that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But he said, look, but by the reason of man, you would have never reasoned yourself to the God of the Bible. Now, you might say, but, but David, people do reason themselves to the existence of God. Well, yeah, I mean, Plato and many people reason themselves to an ultimate good, to an ideal, to, to some thinking of God. But man in his reason would never have reasoned himself to a trinity that's ontologically one and, is, and in its persons and economic functions three. The mystery of who God is was not revealed except in Jesus Christ. So we, we are paying to man a homage that is a finite fallen creature. He doesn't merit. So. Again, this is why Kuiper said apologetics has not advanced Christianity one whit because it still leaves us without the doctrine of the Trinity, which we would not know but for revelation. And when we concede to persons that they can know God by their reason and then have to turn to revelation to prove the triune nature of God, we have undermined ourselves by our initial argument and people turn away from us. You said man's reason was sufficient, but I don't, I don't even understand the concept of a trinity. And, and now you turn back to the Bible. Oh, you tricked me. This is like one of those uh, you know, deals where they get you in the store 
uh, under one guise and say, oh, we sold out all of that, but, but here's something else that just that dishonors God. Now, what does this look like in the area of politics? In the area of politics and law and government, it translates into refusing to bring up issues of metaphysics and, and agrees to operate within a godless vacuum, thinking that in doing so, by conceding to the terms of the debate given to us, that we're honoring God because of the moralistic end we seek to achieve by our public policy or our legal argument, that we're using civil law to prevent a moral evil or to prop up a moral good that actually is already being lost in society and in the law, or you wouldn't need to pass another law. So we confuse the end as justifying whatever the mean is by choosing to limit ourselves within the framework that we're given by the Enlightenment, the godless, and the nihilist. Now I want to play for you a little clip from one of my favorite podcasts, Chalk Knox, and this is this discussion between Chalk Knox, David, and his partner, co-host, whatever you want to call it, Jason Farley, and he's talking about the importance of the Christian cosmology, which again, I'll repeat, is an understanding not just of the laws of the physical nature, but the nature of the universe in toto and how it is supposed to operate, how it's supposed to function. And here is what they say. I've been studying um, economics. I love Thomas Sowell. I appreciate, but ultimately mm -hmm. then, when you give up the Christian cosmology, you are only embracing the other side, the yin yang of, of you know, mm -hmm. it's a yin yang cosmology. It's the same circle, just the other side of the coin, <laughs> right? Now, what is he saying here? It's the yin yang. Okay. What, what we, we tend to do is, is that we all operate then in the enlightenment box that we have to leave God out. And somebody says, gender is a convention. It's a social construct. It's not tied to biological sex. And that's their yin. And our yang is, oh, yes, it is. And so within their framework, we're just arguing the yin and the yang of these two positions rather than saying, no, you're in the wrong cosmology because that's all you have when you operate in a godless vacuum. There is no metaphysic that gives meaning to any of this stuff other than the meaning that we give to it. And you want to give a transgendered meaning to it. And I want to give a defined gender meaning to it. That's what he's talking about. Okay. Now I want to finish what they said here. It's thesis, uh, antithesis, synthesis. It's it, it, you're, you are, um, it's enlightenment. It's an enlightenment cosmology, right? It's secularism and it, it, it will swallow everything. Jason, you know, you got me thinking, this is really interesting. So I'm in my head, I'm thinking of like this, I, you know, man, this is so good. If you draw a circle and you put a line down that circle and you on the, on the left side, you write left and the other side, you write right. The circle itself is a different cosmology and both yes. sides are playing in that cosmology. As a Christian, you need to scribble right through the circle. Yeah. <laughs> 
and not play that game because you're still playing the same. You're embracing the cosmology of the other side just on a more conservative perspective. Right. Now, let me let me demonstrate this. I had a good friend say to me the other day that certain political organizations operated by people who are professing Christians, I'm not calling into question their salvation, were were helpful and that I'd made a rash judgment in stating that they actually did more harm than good. And this is exactly the point that I'm getting at. See, so many organizations run by Christians operate within the cosmology of the Enlightenment, and all they're offering is a yin to the yang. They're not saying your whole cosmology is wrong. It, I, I told a reporter with the Chattanooga paper the other day that I often feel like a person without a country because I'm not in the country of the liberal, but I'm also not in the country of the conservative, political conservative, because the political conservative is living in the cosmology and the kingdom of the liberal and doesn't realize it. So I have no allies, and that's how it feels sometimes. They're not helping because by accepting the, the cosmology of pagan enlightenment, they are furthering that cosmology rather than breaking it apart, rather than scribbling through the line. That's what I'm talking about. And that is a dualism. That's a partial religion. My religion and my cosmology is good for me, but it's not good for society. And that's how we wound up with, with Dr. Kim, the PCA minister, and, and Stetzer, the Baptist guy, saying we're more interested in religious liberty than we are the substance of the law that defines what the nature of a marital relationship is. Because religion, see, now becomes this separate thing that operates over here, separate from the substance of the civil law. And that's where you get, when you, when you embrace a, a subjective theology, and I am sure Dr. Kim, as a PCA minister, would say, no, I don't embrace a subjective theology. I don't embrace that. I'm reformed. But as a practical outworking of what he's doing, he is as subjective as any subjective person would be. And that's the Gnostic kind of notion that separates the, the meaning of the matter, such as male and female in marriage, from the religious aspects of civil society. Well, if there's a God for the religious sphere and a different God that governs the law in the, in the secular sphere, then that's polytheism. And I'm sure both of those men would deny that they're polytheists, but as a practical matter, they operate that way. Now, another person that's fallen into this trap, a person that I personally like, I think he's a delightful speaker, but is David French. And he has made it clear that he thinks that it's fine to protect religious liberty and in this other area of civil life define marriage inconsistent with and contrary to God's creational ordinances and somehow think that, that denying God's creational ordinances will not have repercussions and consequences that lead to death. I mean, right there is the denial of the gospel. Denying God leads to death. It leads to death of individuals. It leads to death of institutions. This Gnosticism of subjective theology always leads to a dualism and a separation of kingdoms between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. 
And that's a repudiation of the Lord's Prayer. It's a limitation on the scope of the kingdom of God. And it's a flat repudiation of what the Apostle John wrote in Revelation, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. What's been lost, my friends, is a cosmic Christ, a Christ of a cosmology for a subjective one. Now, I'm going to close with this because I think it's just so good. It's comments by another friend of mine, Dr. Cal Beisner. He's the executive director of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. But he wrote a little monograph called The Cosmic Consequences of Christ's Crosswork. It was published in 2018. If you'd like to get a copy of it, you can email him. Not sure if the address in the book is still good, but it's ecalvinbeisner, B-E-I-S-N-E-R, at gmail.com. But you can find him at the Cornwall Alliance. And this is what he says, and this is, this is so important. He writes, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Of course, there he's quoting the scripture. So begins the Bible, and it ends in the new heavens and new earth. The two terms, heaven and earth, are the picture frame, so to speak, of the great canvas of creation, time, and place. Before the creation of the first heavens and earth, there was no time, for time began with creation. And with the establishment of the new heavens and new earth, time will yield to eternity. Between the eternity before time and the eternity after time come, in succession, all the events of time, from creation to consummation. And outside of heaven and earth, the current ones now and the new ones to come, there is no place, no thing, literally nothing. Before eternity, there was nothing like what we picture except God. Time and place then, he writes, are the arena of God's artistry. And we and all other things in it, persons and things, living and non-living, are his brushstrokes. Okay, I hope you've got the picture. That heaven and earth, time and space, are the canvas that frame God's handiwork. This is what he says that's so important. The New Testament uses two words to denote what I've just spoken of as God's canvas. The kitsis, K-T-I-S-I-S, or creation, and the cosmos, or world. The former word, kitsis, expresses its origin in God's creative act. The latter word, cosmos, expresses its form, order, not chaos. Okay, see the difference. One is expressing its origin, that it's being created. Cosmos is expressing its form, that it's an ordered thing, not a chaotic thing. And what is probably the most familiar, widely known verse in the Bible tells us that God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, here we go. Hang on to your hats. We American evangelicals, Beisner writes, including the Reformed, tend to focus immediately on people and on people as individuals when we read John 3.16. And we are not entirely mistaken to do so. The fact that it goes from God so loved the world cosmos to that whoever believes a singular pronoun and a singular verb, tells us clearly that the primary emphasis is on God's purpose for individual people. We are right then to cite this verse in preaching the gospel. 
and calling lost sinners to believe and so have eternal life. Nonetheless, that emphasis on individual people occurs within the broader framework, the picture frame, so to speak, of that prior word cosmos. The verse doesn't tell us that God loves individual people, though it does. It tells us he loves the cosmos. You see, this goes back to the interview I had months ago with Andrew Sandlin, his book on creational worldviews, that we've ripped our soteriology, we've ripped our gospel out of the, the cosmos of Genesis 1 and 2. And so our understanding of the redemptive work of Christ is partial. It's not comprehensive. It doesn't grasp the whole world. And the fact that we take Genesis 3.16 and we take the word cosmos and reduce it to just people and their need for salvation shows how much the gospel we preach is subjective, directed to the individual, to the person, to the ego, to the id, rather than God wanting all that he has made, brought back to him and reconciled to him through the work of the new Adam and the descendants of the new Adam, the body of Christ, the bride. And so when, as Kuiper said, we don't get the answer to the first question, correct, is religion for the sake of God, is it for the sake of the individual, it will then determine how we answer the question, is our religion partial or is it all-encompassing? And I hope you've gotten a little picture today of how no matter how loudly we profess an objective theology, a theology that says, yes, we exist for the glory of God, in practice, we don't live it out. We're partial, and we've reduced the kingdom of God and the work of Jesus to something small. As Thomas Chalmers said, no matter how large, your vision is too small. It is, in the words of John Eliot, tawdry compared to the glory of God. Well, that'll end today, and I look forward to having you join me again next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty.